0: Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you guys another morning. If you guys have your Bibles, please be turning to Luke chapter 15. We are going to be looking at that third and final parable in the chapter. And though we have come to know this parable as the parable of the prodigal son. I feel like the more fitting title would be a parable of a father and two lost sons. Well, about 10 years ago, I worked at a place called Home City Ice, and I was a truck driver uh, delivering ice, and one of my roles and responsibilities was also to train new drivers that were going to be on the road. Uh, Evidently, our kind of business uh, was going through a really rough time, uh, where a lot of our drivers uh, were, even though they were experienced, were kind of going about the job in a sort of nonchalant way. And there were several wrecks, people that just weren't paying attention. And so one of the focal points that my bosses wanted me to push on these drivers that were going through retraining is that there's this concept that familiarity can breed complacency. And I think that's something that all of us can relate to. These guys had many hours of experience on the road, but they had become so familiar with the job that when they were getting behind the wheel, they were just kind of nonchalant about these trucks that they were driving. And so they were on these backcountry roads, and they were starting to flip trucks. Or they were at gas stations, and they were hitting those low overhangs. Or in the downtown area, they were going, and they were hitting those low bridges that were there. And so as a result, we were told to tell these drivers, to train them that there is this concept, that complacency, right, this familiarity can breed that sort of complacency, that we approach things in a sort of half-hearted or nonchalant way. I think there's a lesson that we can learn as we approach Scripture from this as well. Today we're going to be unpacking one of the most, if not the most familiar parable to us, And as a result, what happens is we can become so familiar with a text in Scripture that we approach it with sort of a half-hearted manner. A nonchalant kind of attitude, thinking that we know everything there is to know about a text. And that's been the case with so many with this exact parable. Many have thought this is a parable about just a prodigal son. When in reality, it's about a father with two lost sons. And with each of these three different characters, Jesus is intending to communicate some really deep and important truths and messages. And so I know you guys have all heard this parable before, and I know you're all familiar with it. But my urge, my plea to you is that even though you are familiar with it, do not grow complacent with it. So let us go to the Lord. Let us ask the Holy Spirit to give us fresh eyes as we approach his scriptures. Father, we are so grateful to be gathered together as a body of believers. Um, Lord, just encouraged by one another, encouraged by our time studying scripture together this morning, even before uh, gathering for corporate worship. Lord, we pray that um, you would give us fresh eyes. Lord, we are approaching a text that Many of us know, many of us have heard sermons on and read through multiple times or heard Bible studies through, and God, our hearts can become so complacent with things that are familiar to us. And so I pray that this morning as we approach this familiar parable that you would speak anew, give us fresh insights, or convict us of old truths as well. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. We can't forget the context of this parable that Luke sets the stage for us at the very beginning of the chapter. So if you guys have your Bibles, open them to Luke 15, and you'll see back in verses 1 through 3, there is the context of why these parables are told, why Jesus decides to jump into three different parables. Luke tells us that there are these tax collectors, and there's these sinners that have gathered to listen to Jesus. Jesus has been in ministry for a couple of years. And remember, these tax collectors and these particular sinners that Jesus mentions or that Luke mentions for us were those that were some of the most hated and despised people in all of Israel. Tax collectors were cheats. Remember, they worked for the enemy. And not only did they work for the enemy, they skimmed off of the top when they would make you poor so that they could become rich. And so they were despised and they were hated. And these specific types of sinners were ones that were so outcast that they were linked together with these hated tax collectors. They were the outcasts of society that nobody wanted to relate to. And so as these groups of individuals are listening in the crowds, they've gathered to listen to Jesus. We see off to the side are these Pharisees, these religious elites, these scribes. And they are grumbling that Jesus has welcomed them. They're grumbling that Jesus has associated with them. They're grumbling that Jesus would not cast them off to the side, but would allow them to listen to the message that he is proclaiming. And we've seen throughout Jesus' ministry thus far that he does not treat the tax collectors as these scribes and these Pharisees would want them to. He shows compassion. He preaches repentance to them. He eats with them. And they hate that. They're disgusted by that. And they are grumbling about it. And so it is this grumbling that Luke tells us in verse 3. He says, because of these things, Jesus goes and he starts to teach these parables. And so he jumps into three parables. And we looked at two of them last week. Of the shepherd seeking the lost sheep. And we looked at the other one with the woman seeking out, seeking, searching out for the lost coin. And what Jesus has been trying to teach is that opposed to what these Pharisees are teaching in this false ideology, Jesus taught that God, the Father in heaven, is one who is a diligent seeker of lost sinful people like these tax collectors. Like the shepherd who diligently searched for the sheep or the woman who searched for the coin, so too does the Father in heaven search out for the lost soul. And Jesus also taught with these parables that we looked at last week that the proper response to the Father's grace in seeking out lost individuals should be rejoicing, not grumbling. At the end of every parable, we're going to see there is a time of celebration where the person who finds what is lost will look to his closest friends and call for celebration. He's teaching against these hard-hearted, self-righteous Pharisees. And if those two punches weren't enough, this third one is kind of the knockout punch in this parable that he teaches. And so without further ado, let's jump in. And what we're going to see here in this parable of the father with two lost sons is each character is going to kind of teach something different. Jesus is using them in their actions to teach something different. And what we're going to see first is that with this first character, this younger son... Jesus is attempting to paint a picture of perhaps the most shameful and despicable character in all of his parables. He is someone that Jews would have looked at with absolute disgust. So let's read together. Verse 11. He begins by making a disgusting request. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father... Give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Well, like our current structure of inheritances, these were typically passed along when someone would die. When a father would die, they would write out a will, and that property would be passed along to the sons. The oldest son would take the largest share—about two-thirds of the property and the business and the the wealth of the the family wealth while the younger sons would split the rest up evenly. But this son, while his father is still very much alive, approaches his father and doesn't just ask for his inheritance. Instead, he makes a demand of his father. He says, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me, something that he believes is due to him. His father's alive. And he's making a request for something that is only due to him or should come to him after his father has passed away. This would have been viewed as absolutely shameful in Jewish society. By requesting what should be available to him upon his father's death, his son is communicating that he cares very little about his father, he's not interested in a relationship. He's not interested in the well-being of his family. He wants what he wants so that he can benefit for it. In fact, he would rather his father be dead. and Jews listening would have understood that this request would be communicating that. With such an audacious request, the father could have responded in a number of ways. <laughs> he could have blasted him. He could have put him in his place. Said, listen here, young buck. You do not talk to your father that way. Silence. He could have disciplined him. With such a shameful request, he could have completely just written him off and disciplined him. He had all the authority and he could have responded in a number of ways to this shameful son making this request. However, the father forsakes this authority to do any of these. Instead, verse 12 tells us, he just divides the property between his two sons. You know, some commentators have tried to pass judgment on the father for this, but I think they're missing the point of what this parable is communicating. Right now, Jesus isn't highlighting the actions of the father. He is highlighting the shameful decisions that this son is making. So this character that we should be focusing on right now, at least, is this younger son, and so he goes from this despicable request, this shameful request, to a bunch of shameful actions. Let's just keep reading. Verse 13 says this. Not many days later, the young, younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Within a few short days of receiving this inheritance from his father, the son, packs his bags and moves out. Our American context, our American eyes might kind of read this and not think too much of it, right? When someone turns 18, they typically move out. They, they go to college. Perhaps they join the workforce. Maybe they join the military, and that's just kind of like a rite of passage. You raise them, and then you kind of send them off. The kids kind of fly the coop, if you will. But to an Israelite, this Actions of this son would have been really unthinkable. You didn't go off to college. You didn't move away. Instead, you would sit and you would learn from your, the trade of your father. You would work as an apprentice to your father. And you would work helping your father until your father would reach an age where he could no longer do it. And then, and only then, would you step into the position of this father. Even when you got married... You would not just go and move across town. What you would probably do is build an addition onto the house that already existed. Or you would build a small house on the plot of land that your parents owned. Think of this kind of commune-like living. It was a family-style aspect. And the reason that you stayed close to your family is you were responsible for your parents. When they got old, you wouldn't send them off to some senior living city. You would take care of them. But this son, within just a few short days of receiving this inheritance from his father, packs up his bag and moves to a faraway country, communicating that he wants nothing to do with his dad and absolutely nothing to do with the responsibility of his family. It's shameful in the eyes of Jews. And Jesus wants to continue painting this picture, the fact That he moves out isn't just shameful enough. Notice what happens. Jesus says that he moves to a far away land. Jews were supposed to be in the promised land. The promised land isn't this massive land. They were supposed to be set apart from the rest of the nations. Think back to our study in Ezra and Nehemiah. But what Jesus is communicating is that this younger son gets this inheritance and moves to a far away land, a distant land, a Gentile land, is what you and I should be thinking of when we hear this. It's not just treason against his family, it's treason against his nation, and it's treason against God himself. Notice the spiral of sin just keeps happening. These shameful acts keep happening. It'd be one thing if you asked for the property. It'd be one thing if you moved away, but notice what the son does next. He squanders this living in reckless living. Perhaps the only thing that is more insulting than asking for an inheritance before your father passes away is to blow it, everything that he worked hard for, to blow it away on just reckless, vanity pursuits. Jesus wants us to know that this downfall of the son is not because accidents and trials have happened to him. He wasn't robbed. He, he didn't get sick. He didn't become this uh, invalid where he couldn't work. No, he caused this downfall by pursuing his fleshly desires. He caused these circumstances. And verse 14 tells us that he pursued it with such vanity that he spends everything. He goes from one verse having it all, and within one verse he blows it all away, just like that, by a snap of a finger. And right on cue, disaster strikes. If he had acted with wisdom, he would have probably put some stuff aside, (coughs) (coughs) prepared for such a trial. But since he's lived as a fool, he is in desperate straits. He's far from home, he's friendless, he's fatherless, and now he is resourceless. Let's keep reading with the eyes of how a Jew would be hearing this story. Read with me, verse 14 through 16. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Think about how despicable this is. He's shamed his father, he's shamed his family, he's shamed his nation, he's shamed his God. He's living in this foreign Gentile nation, and he's so desperate that he has to hire himself out to an unclean Gentile. And what does this unclean Gentile do? Sends him to work in fields with the most unclean animal, pigs, pigs. And he's in such desperate situation, he's so hungry because of his sinful behavior that he longs to eat what unclean pigs eat. And notice, to add insult to injury, these unclean Gentiles esteem him of less value than the pigs themselves. He's longing to eat the food for the pigs and they say, we're not going to give you anything. Because the pigs that he's serving are more valuable than he is. So in a matter of six verses, Jesus paints this most shameful, despicable character, perhaps across all of his parables. It's of utter humiliation. We can't miss that. The violation of the law has been completely broken. It's not just one thing he's failed in. He's failed in every single manner according to someone who would try to uphold Jewish law. Jesus, honestly, probably couldn't add anything worse to the story. It's, it's all been checked. All the boxes have been checked. This son had hit rock bottom. But as God so often does with those in such low places, he brings about conviction to this son's heart. Let's read verse 17 through 20. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. What happens with this son is described elsewhere throughout the scriptures as the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. All of us who have placed our faith in Christ can relate to what is going on here. Our foolish and sinful decisions have led us to a state of brokenness and desperation like this sun. Where we're living in this muck and mire of sin and we're almost blinded to the muck and mire of sin. We're almost blinded to the desperation. Our wickedness has led us to this place that we're in such a dark place that we don't even see the light whatsoever. But when they are in the pit of that depravity, it's like the Holy Spirit Turn the light bulb on. We were blind before. We were blind to our desperation, our sinfulness, the the ways that we had transgressed against God, against humanity. And just like that, in a snap of a finger, the weight of sin comes crashing down upon us. It's revealed right before our eyes. And notice, it's only then that the son starts to think clearly about a situation. I mean, he's not thinking clearly about a situation when he's in the muck and mire of it. He's not thinking about, oh, man, I'm, I must be in a bad place where I'm hiring myself out to an unclean Gentile. Man, I must be in a bad place when I'm working with pigs. Man, I must be in a bad place that I'm longing to eat food from the pigs. But it's when he hits rock bottom... That it seems like the Holy Spirit awakens his soul to see the sinfulness and the depravity that he is living in. And he recognizes that he is in a bad place. But he acknowledges that it's not just actions that have placed him in a bad place. Notice, he acknowledges that they have been sinful. This is absolutely key. If you go back and you read through the book of Judges, there's a lot of times where people acknowledge that they're in a bad place. And they cry out to God because they're in this bad place, but there's no acknowledgement of sin or repentance. They just went out of that bad place. They call out for God for mercy, and maybe God is merciful, and they kind of get out of that place, and then they just go right back to living in that same dire straits. But notice the son, he acknowledges that he has sinned against his father, and against God Almighty. In fact, he acknowledges that he sins so egregiously that he does not even deserve the title of son. What he has done has been so shameful by writing off his family the way he did and acting as foolishly and wickedly as he did that there's no reason for his father to call him son anymore. And this conviction Leads to action. He wants out of this mess. He doesn't want to be part of this treacherous situation that he is. He doesn't want to live in the muck and the mire anymore. And so he has this plan of action. If I just go home, maybe, maybe my father will just receive me as a servant. I'm unworthy to be called a son. Maybe if I just plead my case before him, maybe, just maybe, he will receive me just as one of his servants. And so he packs up. And he takes a long journey home towards the Father. <coughs> now let's pause for just a second. <clears throat> Imagine reading this from the eyes of a Pharisee. Or hearing this from the eyes of a Pharisee. They're looking at the situation. They're seeing this son. They're seeing the wickedness of this son. And they're probably thinking, oh, we can't wait to see what's going to happen. We can't wait for this son to get what's coming to him. He's been so wicked. He doesn't deserve any type of forgiveness. He's been so shameful that the only thing that's going to come to him, it must be judgment from this father. He let him off the hook early. He's not going to make that mistake again. In fact, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 21 that would actually give credence to a son having his or to a father having a son that acted this way to be stoned to death because of his sin. And so I guarantee you these Pharisees are thinking, ha oh, I can't wait. What's, what's Jesus going to say next? But remember, Jesus in parables, they're like grenades, right? He likes to pull that pin and kind of drop it and say, let's see what happens. What the audience expects to happen with parables is rarely what occurs. Notice the father's first interactions with the shameful prodigal son, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him, while the son was still a long way off. You know that phrase is the same Greek phrase that was earlier translated as a the distant country that the son had run off to. And I think the repetition here is highly symbolic. I think Jesus is using that same repetition to kind of communicate a point. Notice this father feels compassion for his son even before the son has a chance to utter a word of repentance. The son is still a long way off and the father is filled with compassion towards him. It's the same sort of compassion that we saw earlier with the shepherd who has that one lost sheep that has gone astray and has stirred him up to go looking for the lost sheep. And we are told that this father who's filled with compassion towards his son runs to his son Again, our American eyes easily read past this, but there is such shock value that Jesus is communicating here. Guys, back then, men did not run. It was viewed as shameful. If their legs showed, it was viewed as shameful, and so they didn't run. It was something that was dishonorable. And so this fact that this son or this father is running enthusiastically to a son that has shamed him is a huge picture that Jesus is painting for his audience. We need to remember that these aren't just cute fables. They're not just nice stories that we tell our kids at bedtime. There are word pictures of the very realities of the kingdom of God and our God in heaven who moves and acts in these sorts of ways. Notice the father who's moved with compassion when his son is still a long way off. It's representative of of our father who is in heaven who shows immeasurable compassion towards prodigal sinners like you and I who are still a long way off. God doesn't wait for sinners to come home. Like this father, he's the one that takes the initiative to bring about reconciliation. He runs to us and draws us to himself. Despite the shame that our culture might place upon him, he takes the shame and puts it on his son at the cross. He doesn't wait for us to call home. He is the one that calls us home. I know I quote this text a lot when I'm preaching, but it's because it's such a vital text that I think we just need to understand. Romans 5, I think I've got it up there for you, Matthew. Romans 5, 6-8 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That wasn't clear enough. Here's another text in Ephesians that Paul writes about God being the one who initiates redemption and salvation in our lives. (coughs) Ephesians 2 says this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Think of the dead son in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. We were dead in sins. We were children that were deserving of the full wrath of God. But Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Father in heaven has compassion towards us while we are still a long ways off in the distant land of sin. It doesn't wait for us to come crawling back to him in repentance because guess what? Without his drawing, that day would never come. We would still be off in that far distant land of sin. Instead, the Father initiates that process. Instead, the Father calls us us to himself. Instead, the Father makes atonement so that which way we can come to him in repentance. And notice the Son makes confession before the Father in verse 21. And though forgiveness is not merited by confession, this confession is absolutely necessary. It's the fruit of repentance. It shows that the Holy Spirit has been regenerating our hearts, convicting us of sin, and drawing us into salvation. But notice what happens. This son has this plan when he's off in this distant land. He's going to make this, this plan to be received as a slave, but before the son could even utter those words, he is interrupted by his father Guys, I know you know what happens next, right? I know you're familiar with it, but let's just try to hear this perspective again from the grumbling Pharisees whom Jesus is addressing. Verses 22 through 24. But the Father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. Being barefoot was a sign of incredible humility. It was not that you were humbling yourself intentionally. It was you were humiliated if you didn't have shoes. You were in this state of being undignified. I learned apparently this last week too that this was also a pretty good indication that you belonged as a slave to someone else if you did not have shoes on your feet. So this... Son intends to return as he appears, as a slave to his father. But the father has none of it. Instead, he issues a command to his servants. and He says, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Bring me the signet ring, the family ring, the crested ring, and put it on his hand and put shoes on his feet. These are all signs of honor and status that this father wants to restore his son to. Think back to Genesis 41 when Joseph is a prison mate. When Pharaoh wants to restore him to power, a position of authority and honor, what does he do? He has him shave, take a shower, but then he puts on nice linen robes on him. Gives him a signet ring and puts on a nice golden medallion on him to show his position of power and authority and honor and status. In other words, this father doesn't just forgive his sons. What we need to understand here is that he restores him to a position of honor before those. Imagine the faces of these grumbling Pharisees in the crowd. No doubt they're waiting for the hammer to drop in judgment from this son. This is a shameful prodigal they would be shocked that this father acts mercifully and forgives him they would be appalled that this father would restore him to a position of honor no doubt like the tax collectors and sinners that have gathered to listen to Jesus these pharisees viewed the prodigal in a similar vein they're two of the same types of people And they'd be grumbling about the story that's taking place in front of them. He's unworthy of compassion. He's unworthy of mercy. He's unworthy of forgiveness. And not only does the Father forgive him, he restores him to a place of honor as a son and a beloved son. But that's the astonishing news about the kingdom of God. That's exactly the message that Jesus has come to proclaim, that even the most shameful prodigal and the most undeserving tax collector and the wretched sinner is not just offered forgiveness, but is also in astonishingly given a status to be called adopted sons and daughters of God. And not just sons and daughters of God. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we are also called co heirs with Christ. This is incredible news about the kingdom of God, of God's compassion to seek out the lost, to bring about redemption and salvation and restoration. This is cause for great celebration. And so for the third time in three parables, Jesus drives this point home in verses 23 through 24. Read with me, verse 23. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is no half-hearted celebration in a culture where meat was a luxury calling for the fat and calf was a major ordeal right think of in our probably our Common perspective would be like popping the the nicest champagne or busting out and dusting off the nicest, most finest bottle of wine. This is something that would have been reserved for the most monumental of celebrations, like a wedding, a a feast of something of magnitude. This is a major ordeal because this father hadn't just lost a sheep, he hadn't just lost a coin, he had lost his precious son. And the way that his son had initially left and shamed his family with such dishonor, there was no hope that this father could really cling on to that he would ever return. He was as good as dead. But now that he has returned, it's like he's been resurrected from the grave. He's been brought from death to life. And again... Jesus and his genius is, again, just portraying to us the very message of the gospel that he proclaims throughout the entire New Testament. This is the experience of every sinner who has been saved through faith in Christ. We were lost and then we were found. We were dead and now we are brought to life. Colossians 2 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, speaking of Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is good news worth celebrating. This is something to rejoice over. And just as we noticed last week, because of this joy that the father has, he doesn't celebrate alone. He calls for his friends to celebrate. And just as the true friends of the shepherd celebrated with the shepherd, the true friends would have rejoiced with the woman who found her coin Notice here, tells us at the very end, they began to celebrate. And they celebrate with a feast. Eating from a fattened calf. This is the ironies of ironies for these Pharisees. They were mad that Jesus is eating. With sinners, such as tax collectors and sinners. And yet, all of these celebrations would have had some, tor- some sort of feast of celebration. Maybe not as explicitly clear in those first two, but it's obviously explicitly clear with this second one, or this last one. Where they're celebrating eating a calf together. The irony is that when Jesus returns to this world as king and gathers his sheep to himself, Revelation 19 depicts it as a marriage supper of the Lamb. This feast of celebrations, of eating, of triumph, of what the king has done. And so these Pharisees are grumbling that Jesus would eat with these people on earth, not knowing that some of these tax collectors and these sinners are going to be part of that marriage supper in the Lamb in eternity with God the Father. Eating as prodigals who have now been redeemed as those set apart as adopted sons and daughters of the King. Co-heirs with Christ. And here they are grumbling. They're grumbling at the compassion of the Father. They're grumbling that the Father would ever look upon such sinners with mercy and forgiveness. Not recognizing that it's all pointing forward to this great triumphal feast in eternity. Where sinners will be gathered as saints before God. Well, there's... Much more to unpack in this parable. In fact, we haven't even gotten to one of the main characters in this older brother. So instead of jumping into that, we are going to save that until next week. But before we close, let's just meditate on some of these thoughts for this week. Maybe you're here today and you've been living life as a prodigal. Maybe you're a closet prodigal. You attend church, and on the face of things, you don't look like a prodigal. But in your private life, you are running to a far distant land of sin. And maybe for the first time, the Holy Spirit is showing you that your sinful decisions have led you to a place of desolation and depravity before God. You know, our society has this idea that Somehow you have to clean yourself up and then come to God. Maybe that you've sinned so much that you are too depraved and too sinful to ever have a relationship with such a holy God. I pray that you would see that Jesus taught this parable, at least in part, to teach something that is completely different to that false ideology. He paints this picture of the most wretched, sinful person in the eyes of a Hebrew. That finds forgiveness from the Father and is restored to a place of honor as a son before the Father. Forgiveness is always possible. To steal the words from Corey Ten Boom, she says this, No pit is too deep that God is not deeper still. So if you're here today and you are feeling the weight of your sin and feeling like you can't have a relationship with God because you are too unclean, I pray that you would find me after the service, that you would not believe that lie, that you would repent of your sins and be restored. Maybe you're here today and you're not necessarily the prodigal, at least not at this moment. But maybe there is a prodigal in your life that you're losing hope over. Maybe it's a husband, maybe it's a brother, maybe it's a boss, or maybe it is a son or a daughter. With each day that passes, our hearts are prone to lose hope with these prodigals. It seems like every day they are walking and wandering to more and more distant countries of sin. But I think we can also be encouraged by this parable. Again, Jesus paints one of the most shameful characters, one who was in the depths of depravity, who has been restored, who is brought to his knees in humility and repentance and faith. Don't lose hope. Look around, talk to some of these other members in this church, that's exactly the story of their life. Running in rampant sin and God in his grace reached down in the depths of our depravity and drew us to himself church sometimes it's just good to be reminded that we were once prodigals maybe you think you weren't a prodigal but scripture tells you you were none are righteous no not one none have done good all have done evil We were all enemies of God, and we were all pursuing the cares and the concerns of this world with the same sort of reckless abandonment that this younger son had. And by God's grace, the power of the Spirit, he brought us to our senses, drew us, and mercy, while we were still a long way off, drew us to repentance, drew us to an understanding of our sin before him, drew us to a life of repentance and faith and hope. And not only does he bring us to forgiveness, the scriptures tell us that incredible truth that like this son, we too are restored to a position of honor, co-heirs with Christ. You know, the problem is, though, we are so familiar with this truth that sometimes we treat it with half-hearted natures, and we're complacent towards it. Do not become too familiar with the gospel. Instead, let us plead with the Father to give us this new, renewed sense of appreciation for his miraculous work of salvation and redemption in our lives, and let us Go forward with a renewed sense of zeal to proclaim this message that we would be those that God would use to seek the lost sheep of this world. Why don't we stand and let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Father, you are so good. You're so gracious to us. Lord, that while we were still a far ways off, your compassion moved to sending your Son to bring about the work of the cross, Lord, so that through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, Lord, that we could be, well, there could be sin that was atoned for, and those that have professed faith in Christ could be brought to restoration before you. God, so we are so grateful, we are humbled by the story of this prodigal. God, I pray that you would cleanse us of any sort of self-righteous attitudes. Father, any false ideology that we somehow deserved the gospel or earned the gospel. Father, it was grace that brought us to salvation. Lord, so humble us. Help us to see that anew this morning. God, may we be a people moving forward with that zealousness to proclaim that truth to the lost sheep of this world.